All right, Salt Company, you guys can take a seat. Hey, who's excited to be here tonight? Come on. Charlie, Charlie. Great intro to worship. Very nice. That was great. <laughs> okay. All right, well, hey, welcome to Salt Company. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I'm on staff here with this college ministry. And tonight, we're continuing our series through God's heart, Four Minor Prophets. We're not doing Ephesians 4. We're doing a Minor Prophet. It's very exciting. Actually on schedule. So tonight, we've got the book of Jonah. If you've got a Bible, we'd love for you to open it up. Jonah, you can look it up in your table of contents. It's somewhere in the Old Testament. Who knows where it is? You can find it. The book of Jonah. That's where we'll be tonight. Uh, even before we jump in, guys, I wasn't planning on saying this. Our staff met in the basement and just got all warm and fuzzies, okay? We were like, wow, we love you guys. Like, you guys are so awesome. Like, we have just been telling story after story after story of people this spring who have encountered Jesus in a real and authentic, life-changing way, and it was so cool. And so we're so, so thankful for if you're here and that was your story. If it wasn't and you've been faithfully pursuing Jesus, we're so proud of you guys. And honestly, we have the best jobs in the world. So thank you for coming and allowing us to do this. You guys are great. Okay. Hey, let me pray as we jump into the book of Jonah together. Yeah, Jesus, I've just been so thankful for this book. It, uh, man, it's so good. It is so stinking good. It's ministered to my soul, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the ways that you chase me down, even though I run away all the time. I'm stupid, rebellious, and um, I'm just so thankful for who you are. I'm thankful for your heart that we've been able to see in the Minor Prophets. I'm thankful for the names of people in this room that met you this spring. Your faithfulness to pour out your spirit in this place. Your faithfulness to see people meet Jesus in campus groups in one-on-one -on -one meetings and just random people opening up the Bible for no reason, we're so thankful for the ways that you chase us down. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to do this. Uh, help us not to get comfortable with the cross, to get bored with the blood of Jesus. Help us to believe that you are righteous and holy and good. For your spirit be heavy in this place tonight. In your name we pray, amen. Okay. I stink in love hot dogs. Yes. Yes. They're so good. I feel ashamed to say it. I'll say it. They're delicious. Hot dog at a game. Oh my gosh. Incredible. Like when it's warm and then it like kind of bounces back. You know what I mean? Like it's a good, it's a good experience. Hey, hey, don't judge me. It's good, right? It's good. No, it's not good. Okay. It's good. Don't listen to RJ. It's delicious. Hot dogs are great. Hot dogs are great. <laughs> that was going to be controversial. I knew it. I knew. Got some hot dog haters here. I knew that. Thank you. Thank you for affirming my desires. Anyways, hot dogs, delicious. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about hot dogs, though. They're delicious but also confusing because how the heck are they made? Have you thought about this? Don't think about it too long. I once heard someone tell me that sausages are encased in intestines. intestines? That's disgusting. When they say hot dogs are made of all the parts of beef you don't want to eat, I'm like, then why am I eating it? You know, why would you say that to me? When they flex by saying it's 100% beef, I'm always like, okay, that's problematic because that was assumed. You know what I mean? So it's like, what else is in there? How hot dogs are made. It's going to be a big stretch. I apologize to Jesus for this one. Okay, ready? This is a segue. The grace of God. It's like a hot dog. It is. It is. Don't judge me. Thank you, Charlie. It is. I'm sorry. Yep, yeah, yeah. I, I deserve that. I deserve it. I know. 
I'm not proud of this moment. I understand. Let me explain. You'll actually like this. Um, it's the only thing I could think of that really got it, okay? All right, yeah, I got you. I got you. Here's what the grace of God is like, okay? Amazing to partake. Delicious. Chef's kiss. Love the grace of God. Amazing, right? How it works, no one really knows. How God puts it together. You get what I'm saying? Like he, the how. I don't. This is very encouraging and weird. Okay. I don't normally title my messages because frankly, I think it's a little bit cheeseball when pastors do that. I do. I'll be honest. It's usually some lame title. This is the title of the sermon tonight. The unexplainable grace of God in Jonah. That's what we're going to talk about. The unexplainable grace of God. Here's what I mean. The grace of God is frankly hard to understand. Like it's simple in one sense, right? It's what saves you, but it's also what sanctifies you. It's what comforts you and it convicts you. At times it feels therapeutic. At times it feels transformative. At times you can see it everywhere around you and it's obvious. And at times it feels so unbelievably invisible that you don't even know if it's around you. The grace of God may be one of the least understood things in the entirety of human history. So ironically, tonight, my goal is to explain the unexplainable grace of God, okay? So we'll see how this goes. This might be rough. But that's the beauty of the grace of God. It's the mystery inside of it. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Here's why this matters. Many of you may have heard the grace of God only in the categories of the left categories. Comfort, oh, feels so good. Therapeutic, yes, Jesus. Obvious, yes, of course, we love the obvious signs of grace. But what about the aspects of the grace of God that are convicting? that dig into your soul and do surgery on your soul in ways that you don't want it to do? What about the aspects of the grace of God that are transformative? And you know, you know what they say, to grow, you gotta actually you know, have pain. It's painful to grow. What about the aspects of the grace of God that are invisible to the naked eye? Here's what I wanna do for you tonight. I wanna lay you out a theological framework through the book of Jonah for ways that you might not understand the grace of God all around you. I wanna show you that the grace of God is much like the air we breathe. You may not see it, but it is the very thing that is sustaining you. I wanna show you the beauty of the grace of God in Jonah. Okay, question for us tonight. What happens when we encounter unexplainable grace? Three things happen. We run, yes. <laughs> Every good sermon starts with bad news. We run, we're rebellious as heck. We're like, no, don't want it, we run. Second thing that happens, we get rescued. You may be fast, but God is faster than you. You will be rescued. And the third thing is we repent. We say, God, I'm sorry for the life that I've lived. I want to live more like you. Open up your Bibles with me to Jonah as we look at the unexplainable grace of God in the book of Jonah. Part one that we're going to be starting with tonight is we run. Here's what Jonah 1, 1 through 3 says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. All right, Jonah is a prophet. He is a man, he is a spokesperson for God, and the first thing God calls him to is go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh and tell them that I'm about to burn the whole sucker down, okay? That's what God tells Jonah, that's his assignment. And then the first kind of twist of this story is you're like, oh, Jonah, he's a prophet. Religious folk, you know what I mean? Like you, you kind of think they're going to, he runs, he runs. Nineveh's like over here, right? Nineveh, he runs 2,500 miles away. You know how long that is? A freaking long ways. That's what that is, okay? 
Here's, what, here's why Jonah ran. Because Nineveh sucks. It would be like if God called you to go to North Dakota. You'd be like, heck no. The only good thing to come from North Dakota is Monte Knutson. That's the only thing. That is the one thing that I will give that state. But if God was like, you got to go to North Dakota, I'd be like, can it be anywhere else? Okay. No. That was Nineveh. Jonah hated Nineveh because it was the worst. But he actually had pretty legitimate reasons for hating Nineveh. Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Ooh, great. You didn't know you were going to get a geography lesson today. Boom. Got you. Capital of Assyria. Now, who is Assyria? The worst. The worst ever, okay? These were people that were brutal. They were bloodthirsty. They would actually rape, pillage, and enslave the people of Jonah. So when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, God calls Jonah to die. They were pretty used to killing prophets like Jonah. So like any normal person would do, he's like, no, <laughs> anywhere else but there, please. So he runs. He runs. Now, what I love about this um, is it's hard for us to understand this because here's the reality. We tend to think, all of us, in categories like Nineveh, okay? What I mean by that is all of us have this thing inside of us where we're like, you know what? God should save me, but not North Dakotans. Like, we tend to think like that. We're like, there's these people in my life that are frankly too far for the grace of God. The people in my life that really sin a lot or didn't really grow up around religion or didn't really grow up around church, those people are too far for the grace of God. And so here's the first essence of the unexplainable grace of God. He, Jonah is a prophet, and he's called to go to people that want to kill him. Jonah is a prophet that is called to go to people that are the absolute worst. I have a quote from a pastor that I thought was helpful for us to deepen this reality that none of us would go to Nineveh, okay? Here's what he says. The people of Nineveh to Jonah would be like a Ku Klux Klan member to us, a skinhead, a pedophile, a drug dealer, a corporate fat cat who steals from the poor, a militant Islamic radical, a, a cannibalistic serial killer. So, of course, Jonah would not want to go there. And this would have been Jonah's heart posture. God, I'll do anything for you. I'm a prophet. You know, I'm a, you know we do the thing. I'll do anything for you. I'll go anywhere for you. I'll give up anything for you, but not that one thing. And here's what the story tells us. It's the word that God gave to Jonah that actually pierced his soul. It hit his one thing that he would not want to give up. Here's what happens to us if you want to follow Jesus. He will consistently give you a word from the word of God through prayer, through listening to the Bible being taught that presses on the one thing that you don't want to give up. Time and time again. Jonah was like a pretty religious dude. Like he, he had his ducks in a row, but Nineveh was the one thing that he didn't want to give up in his heart. And so God takes his finger and presses upon that. And this is what we call conviction in the Christian walk. If you're new here to Christianity, conviction is that feeling inside of your soul, not of shame or guilt, but where the spirit of God through the word of God pierces your soul and presses on the one thing that you don't want him to know about the one thing you don't want to give up. If you're a note taker, here's what I want you to write down. The conviction of God feels much more like surgery than it does therapy. Much more like surgery than it does therapy. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know. I'm like, Jesus, change me. Yes, I'm available. You know what I mean? I'm like, make me more like you. But I'm, what I'm imagining is like, I say that prayer, and then because I said it, God's like, okay, welcome to my therapy office. Yes, sit down. Let me give you some tea, essential oils everywhere, you know, plants, very nice to breathe. Ooh, very nice, comforting. 
here's what the conviction of God is like. It's like you giving God, like, here, God, take my medical ID license because I'm going to spend a bunch of time at the ER. Like, you go to the surgery, and he straps you down, and then he takes out a scalpel, and he, like, digs into the tumor of your sin inside of you. That's what conviction of God is like. Bummer, okay? Bummer. Why do I make such a big deal of this? I say this because in our ministry, so many of you guys have met Jesus in the last two years, which is so awesome. But I'm really afraid that your theological understanding of grace is only the grace that saves you, not sanctifies you. Thank you, Jalil. That feels very affirming. So when you get strapped down on the surgery table, you're going to say, that's not grace. When he convicts you of your sin, you're going to say, no, 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 I remember grace. Grace felt like comfort, not conviction. Grace felt like therapy, not transformation. You're going to look at yourself and look at God and say, God, have you changed? Has your character changed towards me? Has your disposition changed towards me? No. The simple reality that I want to show you here in Jonah is that God loved Jonah so much that he sent Jonah to Nineveh, not just to transform Nineveh, but to transform Jonah. He will place his finger on the thing that you love the most in this life because he loves you too much to not convict you of your sin because conviction is what will lead you to a life of flourishing, not that thing. Listen, I don't know what it is for you. We've all got stuff. I've got stuff, so much stuff. Oh, my gosh, scary. <laughs> don't think about it. I don't know what it is for you. For you, it could be a boyfriend or girlfriend who doesn't know Jesus. That's the one thing that you kind of carry in your back pocket every time you come to Saul coming and you're like, man, I really hope God doesn't convict me of that. For some of you, it's the way that you spend your weekends. You're like, God, I'll give you Monday through Thursday. I'll give you that time. Dude, I got you. I'm going to like Bible study. I'm going to campus group. I'm going to Salt. But then the second Friday it hits, oh, that Christianity stuff, yeah, I'll, that's next Monday. Maybe for you, it's your addiction to approval from athletic and academics. Like, you can't imagine a future where you don't receive approval and, you know, whatever it is. You need a certain career path to go down. You're like, God, I'll give you some money, but please don't mess with my dreams. I don't know what it is for you. But God loved Jonah so much that he would convict him of his own sin on the way to Nineveh. And I bet tonight many of us are going to feel the scalpel of grace, okay? Hurts like hell. It really does. But it makes you holy. It makes you holy. Okay. So why did Jonah run? Because he couldn't understand the grace of God. This doesn't feel like grace. What? Preach the gospel to the bunch of crazy people? No. What? Feel convicted? No. He didn't like the way that God was using his grace. He thought his plans were greater than God's plans. So he ran. But here's the thing. What did I tell you in the beginning? You can run, but God will catch you. Part two. Part two, the rescue of God. The rescue of God. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Okay. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Let us not lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Great, great. And the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This story is getting good. It's good. Some of you guys are like, finally, he's talking about the fish. And you're like, 
I wanted to know about the fish. Okay, we'll get to that. Here's what Jonah does. He flees to Tarshish, which is a solid 2,500 miles. I had to Google this. Did you know that from here to the North Pole, it's 3,100 miles? Just 600 miles less. Very exciting. He flees. Flees to Tarshish. Takes a boat, obviously. Doesn't know how to row a whole boat by himself, so there's a crew. And then the crew's like, okay, what the heck is this? There's a storm. That's crazy. So then they start, like, offering sacrifices to their gods. They're like, hey, god of the rain, god of this one, whatever, can you chill out a little bit? And then their gods don't work. So then they're like, hey, Jonah, um, is there anything we should know about? And he's like, yeah, by the way, I'm fleeing from the god who created heaven and earth. And they're just like, okay, you suck, you suck. And then he's like, don't worry, though, just throw me overboard. We'll be chilling. And they're like, what? That feels like murder. But then they... It's kind of weird. And then they're like, oh my gosh, like we believe. And they start praying to God and they repent and there's a revival on that ship. It's like amazing. God keeps using Jonah's disobedience for revival. It's amazing. We'll get back to it. So then Jonah gets thrown off the boat, okay? And then the big fish swallows him up. Very exciting. Now this point is pretty quick. So let me just touch on a couple things. First one is, is this fish literal, literal or figurative? Right? Is this a literal fish or figurative fish? Here's the thing. I don't know. But here's what I know. If you believe that Jesus died and resurrected from the grave, you believe that God can transform the entire world and created heaven and earth with his words and knew that you were in your mother's womb even before you got there. What, what, what the heck does that mean? If you believe in all of that, that he creates black holes with his hands, could he not also, you know, get Nemo to swallow Jonah? Like, that's just my thoughts. Tuna swallows Jonah. It's not my problem. Maybe. It's probably a whale. It's probably a whale. It was probably a literal whale that swallowed Jonah and God, like, you know, used the acid in the whale. Yeah, all that stuff. We can talk about that stuff later. Is that the main point of this story? No. Four chapters, two verses on a fish. Chill out. You're fine. You're fine. What's the point of the story? The point of this passage that I want to lean in and ask is, how did God rescue Jonah? How? He sent a storm. He sent a storm. Now, why did God send a storm to rescue Jonah, right? Because you're kind of thinking, like, if I'm God, don't play this game too often. If I'm God, like, wouldn't you just, like, teleport Jonah to Nineveh? Like, I feel like you could save the whole fish crab, the three days, three nights, vomiting out. Like, that seems like a lot. Why not just, like, heli lift him, drop him off? Why send a storm? Here's why. Because the person that God was trying to save Jonah from was Jonah. He did not want to be saved. He did not want to be rescued. He was in complete rebellion against God. So what does God do? God sends a storm that would shake the soul of Jonah. He would send a storm that could kill him, that could end his life, that would bring him to the end of himself so that he could see that he needed something more than his own strength. Okay, let me get serious. I know I've been a little bit much tonight. I'll say it. Some of you guys are in storms right now, and your analysis of those storms is that God doesn't care. You're like, the reason why I'm going through this storm right now is because God doesn't actually care about me. This isn't what grace feels like. I hate this storm around me. I just want to get out of it as quickly as possible. There's no way that God's grace is in this. I can't see it anywhere. Some of you guys right now are in crazy storms in your life. Here's what I want to ask of you. What if God is sending the storm? so that he can save you. Jonah didn't want to be saved. Why did he not want to be saved? Because he had a pride inside of him that thought he could actually have greater plans than God's, that he had self-sufficiency within himself, that he was worshiping him, not worshiping God. So what did God do? God sent a storm to shake the internal narratives of Jonah. 
what happens when Jonah gets thrown off the boat, drowns like every other person. Boom, bottom of the sea. And in that moment, I cannot help but wonder if that would have been one of the first moments of Jonah's life where he just says, I need help. I need help. I can't do it. I'm at the bottom of the sea. There's nothing I can do to save myself, but I need help. And in that moment, he got to the end of himself, and God met him with grace. Maybe for some of you, what you need to hear tonight is a storm that you're going through is not because God does not care, but it's because he wants to lavish you with grace to bring you into deep relationship with him. Keller says this about the grace of God. If you want God's grace, this is going to be kind of hard to understand, but it's really good. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done or look at all I've suffered. However, God wants us to look at him. God sent the storm to Jonah to show him that he can control heaven and earth and the waters of his land. And his plan was better than his. And to shake Jonah out of the false allure of self-sufficiency and his pride. God sent a storm. Okay. Last thing I want you to write if you're a note taker on this point. What if God will break you to save you? That's what I want you to ask. Some of you guys feel really broken right now, and you think that's because God doesn't care about you or because he doesn't want you to know him. But what if God will actually break you by sending a storm to save you? What if the deepest wounds in your life are not because God doesn't love you, but because God wants to create in you a deep resolve to know him? What if he's sending the storms not to kill you, but to transform you? What if God will break you to save you? Here's the most accurate and logical response to being rescued by God is to repent. Look with me to the next part, to repent. This is Jonah chapter 2, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you for what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. I love the Bible because it includes verses like that, okay? Vomited, oh, gross, disgusting. Here's what we see as Jonah's response to being rescued by God, his first step of repentance. Verse 9 says, with a voice of thanksgiving, here's what Jonah did in response to being rescued by God. He has a worship party and a whale. Isn't that fun? So fun. Three days, three nights. Ain't no signs, ain't no lyrics, ain't no band, no LEDs. He just is there worshiping God. All of chapter 2 is just a love poem about how beautiful God is. I love that. Something my friend Mark Vance said that I think is so simple but, like, so beautiful is he says, if you get salvation, the grace of God, it'll make you sing. It's just true. So all coming. Why do we sing? Do we sing because we're good singers? Heck no, I'm a horrible singer. Many of you guys are too, no offense, except the worship team and the people edition. But we're just not that good of singers. Do we sing because we just like the sound of noises through our minds? Do we sing because Leo, who's normally here, has a buttery voice? Yes, partly, but that's not the reason. We sing because we have been rescued by the grace of God. That's why we sing. You know, I remember 
first coming into church and kind of being weirded out by people who like worshiped really intensely, you know, I was like, why are they doing that? <laughs> so creepy. Uh, you know, I, I'm not judging. I'm just saying, I was judging. I was 100% judging. I was 16. Chill out. You guys judge me for judging people. I get it. It's sin. I'm repenting. But when I got to know the people of the stories, the stories of the people who worship so hard, I began to understand. Because there were people who were at the bottom, at the bottom of the sea, drowning without God. And they might not be here today unless Jesus Christ intercepted their life. So when you hear people wail in worship, like, you know, when it's like they're singing and then they're like shouting and then they're wailing. It's like, wow. That's because they're remembering what it felt like to be at the bottom of the sea. What it felt like to be rebellious like Jonah, running away from God. And they remember God rescuing them. Why do we sing? We sing because we are unbelievably thankful for the grace of God that saved us. Listen, whatever expression you have during worship, not my prerogative. Do whatever you want. But maybe for you tonight, the application of this sermon could be like actually worshiping God for the first time. Like some of you guys are just like watching other people worship. It's kind of weird. Like functionally, you should change that. You should join in. And just be like, man, I, I want my heart to be in this. I, I don't want to sing songs because other people are singing songs. I want to sing songs because I've been rescued by the Savior of the universe. I want to know Jesus. I want my heart and praises to go out to him. How thankful are you when you receive an incredible gift? What if that gift is eternal life in Christ? Would you not be thankful to worship him like that? That's why we sing. We're not just singing people for the sake of it. We're singing people because God has saved us and rescued us from our sin. Okay. First thing is when we repent, we sing. The second thing we see is when we repent, we move. Look with me to Jonah chapter 3. This is uh, my favorite part of the story. I'll say it. You know, the rest of it's good. This part's great. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, best sermon ever, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Hilarious. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the greatest of them to the least of them. Okay, here's what I want you to see in Jonah. Repenting isn't just like, feeling bad for yourself, okay? It's not just like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's not just feeling a type of way. It's not just singing a type of song. It's moving towards what God has called you to. That's repentance. Repentance requires action. Not before. We're not asking you to repent before you're rescued. But I'm saying when you're rescued by King Jesus, the only logical next step is to repent. Remember that thing that we talked about, the one thing that you're like, oh, please don't touch. Okay. That thing. Jonah ran to that thing. Because he had been rescued by God. Some of you tonight are going to wrestle with God a little bit. Because you're going to be like, God, please don't touch it. And he's like, and touches it. And you're going to have to ask yourself the question. If you believe that God rescued you from death, what other response is there except to repent? If you actually believe 
that you were dead in your sins at the bottom of the sea. You had nothing to do and nothing to give and no way to save yourself. And God reached his hand down to the bottom of the sea and picked you up. What other response is there except to repent, to sing, and to say, I'm going to take action. For some of you tonight, action may be the thing that God calls you to. Okay. Next part is so great. Guys, that sermon Yet in 40 days, this will be overthrown. In Hebrew, that's five words, okay? I don't know what five words they are, but my commentary said they're five words. Let me just say, worst sermon ever, okay? It's about God, no mention of God. Like, that should be, like, the first thing. No chance, like, repent. No chance of, like, call. There was no hot dog analogy, as you can see. Very important. Literally, all he says is, yet in 40 days, you know, he's covered with, like, fish guts. You know, he was vomited out. He looks disgusting. Yet in 40 days, this will be overthrown. Okay, but get, guess what God does? He sends revival in a miraculous way. Nineveh was a city of 120,000 people with the king of Assyria there. And then later verses in chapter 3, here's what we learn. The king himself repented. And then later it says, like, cows got saved, which I was like, okay, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm like, wow, do you just like, what the heck does that mean? I eat a lot of steak. And it was, it was a problem. It was a problem. But literally, the entire city of Nineveh, the entire city of Nineveh repents of their sin. To the worst sermon in the world, okay? Let me ask you a question. How did God send revival to Nineveh? Was it, you know, Jonah's like, man, like, I'm like this really cool TikTok pastor. Is that what sent revival to Nineveh? Was it his Jordan 1s? Is that what sent revival to Nineveh? Was it a lot of money or big buildings or flashy people or impressive people? Is that what sent revival to Nineveh? What did God use to send revival to Nineveh? He used a repentant heart. Listen, I think a lot of you guys have really sweet ambitions. You're like, man, my campus needs Jesus. My city needs Jesus. My friend groups need Jesus. My teams need Jesus. How will God send revival to those places? Your repentance. Not flashy lights. Not cool things. Not some, like, new and woke way to present the gospel. It's like, wow. It's like GMO and gluten-free. No, none of that. None of that. He will use your repentance. The question I want to ask you tonight that will be very challenging is maybe the reason why you aren't having gospel influence on the people around you is because you haven't repented of your sin. It's because you haven't come face to face with the brokenness of your life. So what if God would use your repentance to transform the people around you? What we see in Nineveh is Jonah was only like 50% repentant, okay? He was not, guys, that's the worst sermon ever. He did not prep a sucker, okay? He was just showed up, and he's like, ah, oh, fine, I'll do it. And yet God used his disgruntled obedience to bring revival to a city. What could God use to reach St. Paul? Your repentance. Okay, as I call the worship band back up, as I call the worship band back up, here's how I want to end our time together. In the final chapter, in the final chapter of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, go read it. I don't have time to teach it. It's this incredible book. It'll take you 10 minutes to read the whole book. It's awesome. There's this moment that made me laugh. Like, I laughed a lot prepping the sermon where Jonah's, like, still peeved at God, okay? Because he just can't explain the grace. He's like, God, like, why would you bring, like, why would you save all these people who don't deserve saving? Why would you save all these people who are such sinners? Why would you save all these people who, who killed my people? Why would you save these people who enslaved me? Like, these are the worst type of people ever. Why would you save these people? So he's sulking on a hill, sitting on a hill, watching, you know, super salty. Okay. In that setting, 
God gives Jonah a tree. Absolutely beautiful. He's like, Jonah, you look a little parched and you're sweaty. So let me give you a tree, give you some shade. And it says that Jonah was comforted. Beautiful, right? And then God's a savage. He kills the tree. Like he just like, ah, I gave you shade. Boom, no tree for you. That's what he does. It's honestly kind of confusing. You're like, that seems a little spiteful. I'll say it. (laughs) Not judging you, God, but still, you know. And here's why he showed why he gave a tree and took away a tree. It's because Jonah was more pissed about a dead tree than dead people. Think about that. He was more angry that God would kill a tree than 120,000 lost people dead, spending eternity apart from God. That's why God, tree, kill tree. That's why he did that. This is beautiful symbolism. Don't make me cry. It's great. 800 years later, on a different hill, there would be a different tree. Same message. This time he didn't kill the tree to prove that he loved people more than things. He killed his own son. That's the gospel tie-in to Jesus. How beautiful is that? That God would raise up a tree to give grace to Jonah and would kill that tree to show him his love for Nineveh. And 800 years later on Golgotha on a different hill, he would raise up a tree, no longer to kill that tree, but to stamp his body on it and to kill his own son for us. God's grace is unexplainable, is it not? As I was prepping this text, I was just processing my own life. And uh, I was thinking about all the unexplainable parts of God's grace. Like it's comforting, it's convicting, it's therapeutic, it's transformative, it's obvious, it's invisible, it's weird. It calls us to go to people that we'd never want to go to. I mean, the whole thing, all of it, unexplainable. Yet the most unexplainable thing about the grace of God was the fact that he saved me. That was the most unexplainable thing about the grace of God. I could not help but think to myself, God, I'm Jonah. Like the point of the story is not to be like, Jonah, you suck, okay? It's so Jonah can be a mirror to us and for us to say, I am Jonah. I run from God every single day. I run from him and go to things that don't matter. I run from him and try to lean on my own self-sufficiency. I run from God every single day of my life. And I was far from him, running 2,500 miles in the other direction, and then God saved me even though I didn't want saving. That is the rescuing of God. And it's when you read this story that you're like, you know what? You know who sounds a lot like Nineveh? Me. Dead in my sin. Dead people walking. And before I met Jesus, I had nothing to give him. I had no good words. I had no righteousness on my own. I had nothing to give Jesus. And yet the most unexplainable thing about the grace of God is that came and got me. Listen, for some of you in this room, you're a Christian. You have put your faith in Jesus. This story should make you say, King Jesus, thank you so much that I am Jonah and you came to get me. But for some of you in this room, you've spent the last years of your life running from God. And you think to yourself, you know what? There's actually no way that God would want to chase after someone like me. Listen to this story. Jonah disobeys God, gets on a boat to 2,500 miles away, and yet God saves him with a storm and a fish. If God could save Jonah in a miraculous way, could he not also save you? He is on a rescue mission for the world, and you're part of that vision. Hey, as we close, uh, I just want to have you guys close your eyes, and we're going to enter into a time of repentance and a time of reflection. As you reflect, you can get up and pray over other people. If you want to talk to someone about their heart, whatever it is, that's great. 
But here are a couple different things I want you to be thinking about. For some of you in this room, you have spent your entire life running from God. Maybe you grew up in the church, maybe you grew up around religion, and you're thinking to yourself, man, God, I've been running from you. And maybe you're here tonight because you've actually hit the bottom of the sea and you need rescuing from him. What he might do in your heart tonight is pick you out from the depths of the sea and bring you into relationship with him. And maybe for the first time tonight, you can worship. You can respond to the rescuing of Christ. For some of you tonight, you're in a storm that makes no sense. There's unexplainable grace in the storm and you're not even sure if God is around you or if he's doing anything in you. Here's what I'm praying for you tonight, that the spirit of God would remind you that it's in the storm that he wants to meet you, that he might break you to save you, that he's pursuing you in the storm. And for some of you tonight, the last group of people I wanna to talk to, is there something on your heart that you've just been like holding back? It's the Nineveh of your heart and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way God I could give this up. Maybe for you, God would call you to repent by singing and worshiping him and to take action against that thing. If God could chase after Jonah, he can chase after us. Let's spend a few moments reflecting.